This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sorry to bother you at 10 p.m., doctor, but we need this autopsy now. It's not like I could sleep after seeing this girl. Any leads? You've only got 20 days before your men are reassigned, correct? And mere hours before the press makes a meal out of this. Dead white girl on Chinese soil. I can only imagine the headlines. Hence, the late night. Well, don't worry, Colonel Han. We'll figure out what happened to... Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. Her name again? Pamela Werner. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the murder of Pamela Werner. If you like the show, we'd appreciate immensely if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network or on our website, Parcast.com. On the morning of Friday, January 8th, 1937, the body of 19-year-old Pamela Werner was found at the base of the Fox Tower in Beijing, China. Though Pamela was a British citizen, she was born and raised in Beijing after being adopted there as a child. Her adoptive parents were Edward and Gladys Werner, a former British diplomat and his wife, both part of Beijing's exclusive expatriate crowd. Gladys had died from a prolonged illness years ago, and now her father, Edward, had just lost the other most important woman in his life. But if Gladys's illness was a natural tragedy... What happened to Pamela was anything but normal. It was up to the doctors at Peking Union Medical College to stay up late and get to the bottom of her multiple injuries. We can establish the time of death between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. The cause was several blows with a blunt instrument to the area by her right eye, which split her skull and caused massive bleeding. That indicates that she was likely facing her killer which means she may have known them. We have to assume the other injuries were inflicted post-mortem, possibly by a knife or blade, maybe four inches long. They severed her throat, in addition to all the other slashes across her body. 
Look at her arm, though. It's practically severed. I don't think a four-inch blade could have done that. No, that's a different blade. Something much sharper and specialized. It's almost like they tried to dismember her and couldn't quite do it. What about her missing organs? Well, Colonel Hahn, she's been split open from throat to pelvis, like someone wanted to pull her apart. The killer broke her ribs, then took her heart, her bladder, and kidney. And her liver. Oh, yes, sorry. Thank you. I'm a little dazed. Her liver, too. Wild dogs couldn't have done this. It's clearly the work of a madman. Yes, but a professional one. The incisions in her abdomen are clean, precise, maybe even done with a scalpel or amputation knife. So a doctor or surgeon could have done this? <laughs> Not a sane one, but despite the mess, it's actually quite a clean crime. The wounds on her genitals. I have to ask, was she raped? There's evidence that Pamela had intercourse in the recent past, but we can't tell how recently, or if it was consensual or not. So we can't be sure if it was related to her murder. Anything else? Odds and ends. Her teeth were very healthy, with signs of excellent dental work. Perhaps her family was well off. Our pharmacologist couldn't find any trace of poison or drugs. She'd been drinking, but the alcohol level in her blood wasn't very high. Oh, and she had Chinese food on the night she died. Interesting. She was out in the legation quarter last night, so you'd think foreign food would be her last meal. What about her blood? There's hardly any on her blouse. And only a few rips on her clothing, too. Whoever did this would have had to strip her, kill her, then dress her again. The blood loss would have been massive, but there was so little of it at the Fox Tower. Which means that she was killed elsewhere. Han rushed to begin the investigation, and the press caught up quickly. The next morning, the China Press front page read, Ex-British Consul's daughter discovered dead, badly mangled. Several papers ran stories about the murder, though most got key details wrong. They claimed Pamela was anywhere from 15 to 19, and that she had been savaged by a pack of wild dogs. Most also said that her father, Edward, had found her body first, and that he had thrown stones at the vicious dogs to keep his daughter's body safe. It must have been a huge thorn in Colonel Hahn's side. With so little to go on, he already had to deal with an avalanche of sensationalized reporting. Hahn ran the Morrison Street Detective Bureau and was chief of police of Southeast Beijing. Though tall and imposing, he was also known to be polite and by the book. Now, he only had around 20 days to solve the case, which seemed to be the standard at the time, before his detectives and resources were reassigned. Pamela was found on Chinese soil, so the case was Han's. But since she was British, he needed to deal with officials from the legation quarter. Any slip-up would risk making the Chinese police look incompetent in the eyes of the already prejudiced legation crowd. So Han met with legation police commissioner Thomas. There was distrust on both Chinese and British sides, but the two men had uncovered Pamela's body together and had known each other for years. Han, she's British. Her father's an old China hand. This will get political. And it will be bad for me if I don't look like I'm participating too. There's a fine line between helping and meddling, Commissioner. Quite right, but there will be meddling. Even if you're taking the lead, 
The legation will want to nominate an envoy to oversee things. Still don't quite trust the Chinese, do they? The case is political. Can we please not be? Look, the best thing to do here would be to nominate someone yourself. Like who? I could provide a suggestion. I know a man. Very apolitical. Not a diplomat. Just a good officer. Unless I'm already meddling. <laughs> uh, I'll allow it. Just this once. Thomas made a call to his associates in Tianjin, the same city where Pamela had gone to boarding school right before she died. And that's how Detective Chief Inspector Richard Dennis became Colonel Han's reluctant partner in crime solving. DCI Dennis was around 40, a British former soldier who had trained in Scotland Yard, but grew tired of the low pay of British police life. He moved to China with his wife and child, and though police work in Tianjin was routine and boring, the pay more than made up for it. The house, beach cottage, and a private school education for his son, Dennis reluctantly played nice with the diplomats in Tianjin. Still, he was a smart, independent officer at heart, which meant the strict rules he was given by John Affleck, Tianjin's British consul, probably made him bristle a little. Keep your investigation to foreigners and the legation quarter. Anything outside it is Colonel Han's problem. Well, that's going to make it a lot harder for me to get anything done. Dennis, let's be realistic. You're on loan to them as a favor. Just keep an eye on things and get back to Tianjin as quickly as you can. That reminds me. The girl went to school here. Should I assign anyone to the school to ask around? She was killed in Beijing. This case is not Tianjin's problem. Am I clear? Yes, sir. On the afternoon of Saturday, February 9th, DCI Dennis took a train to Beijing and met Colonel Han for the first time. Pleasure to meet you, Dennis. Cigarette? I shouldn't, but I will. And they said you weren't a diplomat. No, but I do play well with them. Speaking of which, I'm not here to get in your way. I will only question suspects within the legation quarter and leave you to investigate the rest of Beijing. Fair, but what if I need your help? I'm no big fan of the legation, but I won't let a Scotland Yard man piddle away his time by polling housewives at hotel parties. Well, we just have to keep things quiet. If you need me, of course. I'm good at quiet. Wonderful. Pamela was at home in both the Chinese and British worlds, so it's only natural that it took an investigator from each world to go after her killer. But which Pamela were they dealing with? In Dennis's city of Tianjin, Pamela was seen as a quiet, plain schoolgirl with a serious boyfriend. But in Han's Beijing, Pamela was known as a nearly 20-year-old woman with an independent streak and a whirlwind social life. She was a girl with two different sides, and it was tough to tell which side had caught the eye of her killer. It's not like any of the early leads helped clarify. The calls that came pouring into Han's office police station were anything but sensible. One caller said he killed Pamela because she was an evil fox spirit who possessed him. But he also said she was a Russian prostitute who he had strangled to death, so his story clearly didn't match the actual crime. Then there was Sun Dashing, a young rickshaw puller seen washing blood from his rickshaw cushion by the Fox Tower. But he said the blood came from a Marine that he'd picked up in the dangerous Badlands neighborhood. Sun didn't want to frighten new customers away with a bloody rickshaw. Over the weekend, Han and Dennis split up the tasks. 
Han spoke to the heartbroken servants at Pamela's house, who offered no new information. Meanwhile, Dennis visited Ethel Gurevich and Lillian Marnovsky, Pamela's companions at the ice rink on the night she died. After determining Pamela hadn't eaten Chinese food with her friends, Ethel and Lillian, even though the autopsy said that she had it at some point that night, Dennis probed deeper, asking if Pamela seemed different recently. She seemed more grown up. She went on about boys and parties. Any boy in particular? Mm, One in Tianjin. I don't know if she said his name, but she was very excited about his visit. Oh, the poor boy. I hope someone has told him. Dennis and Han compared notes, but nothing stood out except one thing. The timing of Pamela's afternoon didn't make sense. The servants assured me she left Armor Factory Alley around three. Are you quite sure? Ethel said she didn't meet up with Pamela at the Wagon Lee Hotel until after five. Is it that far from her home? No, not at all. It's a 20-minute bike ride, maybe 30 if she went along the Tartar Wall to avoid the Badlands, which I would if I were her. So what was Pamela doing that afternoon between leaving home at three and meeting her friends after five? The answer to this question came on Sunday evening. A concierge at the Wagon Lee Hotel, where Dennis happened to be staying, called one of Han's men with news. Oh, the dead girl. Yeah, she was here that day. I'm nearly certain it was between three and four. I didn't talk to her directly, but one of us did. She wanted to know the cost of booking a room. Oh, excuse me, I'll be right back. How odd. She lived 20 minutes away. Why book a room? Maybe to rendezvous with her visiting boyfriend? Possible. Or maybe she'd had a fight with her father and wanted to get away. I hear their relationship was, uh, tense. I suppose we'll have to ask him. Rumor is he's practically speechless with grief. Won't be easy for us to get anything out of him. We? He's British, Dennis. Which means he's all yours. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. At the British legation, the inquest into Pamela Werner's murder began on Monday, February 11th. Han and Dennis begged Consul Fitmaurice to keep the details of Pamela's organ removal a secret from the press. Foreigners had always spread racist rumors about the Chinese removing human organs for religious and medicinal rituals, and Han and Dennis didn't want to fuel the flames of a culture war. Especially when they had multiple threads to investigate. Dennis sent his men in Tianjin to see Pamela's boyfriend, Misha Horyelsky. Misha was devastated and spoke of looking forward to visiting Pamela in Beijing. Misha had assured them he had been in Tianjin at the time of her murder. Since his family was wealthy and respected, the police backed off. In Beijing, Han sent constables in search of bloodstains at hotels and lodging houses. He also investigated Chinese restaurants to see if they'd seen Pamela have her last meal of Chinese food. 
no luck there. Han figured whoever moved Pamela's body had access to a car, but since the city's registry of cars was incomplete at best, it was a dead end too. Dennis prepared to meet with Edward Werner by studying up on the rumors that swirled around him. Especially interesting were Werner's reactions to Pamela's many would-be suitors. There was John O'Brien, a half-Portuguese, half-Chinese suitor who was apparently obsessed with Pamela and had even proposed. There was also a student, Han Shou Jing, who visited Pamela several times. Incensed, Edward argued with him in the streets and wrapped the boy across the face with his cane, breaking his nose. These men were just flirtations, since Pamela didn't have a serious boyfriend until Misha, but they still infuriated Edward. Dennis thought Edward's violent past made him a suspect worth considering. A recent study shows that in the U.S. in 2011, 79% of murders were committed by a friend or a family member of the victim. Maybe things were different in 1930s China, but Dennis still wanted to check. Still, he had to be careful. Even if there was no love lost between the legation and Werner, he couldn't paint Werner as a madman that the British government had employed for years. Also, Edward lived outside the legation on Chinese soil, so Dennis technically wasn't even allowed to visit him on official police business, but he went anyway. Dennis found a bereaved father who took a while to open up. Edward's old fire reappeared, however, when Dennis brought up Pamela's suitors. And what of this Chinese student? I heard there was a rather public row. Not this story again. I was just defending my daughter. You broke his nose. And I'd do it again. You see, Han Shoujing was a former student of mine, and I knew he was married. He has a wife in another town. You're certain he was trying to seduce Pamela? I was, but maybe they were just friends. I don't know. It wasn't easy. Pamela wasn't easy. I thought it'd get better after she went to England. Pamela was leaving China? Yes. Didn't you know? After all the trouble at the Tianjin school. What trouble? Aren't you from Tianjin? Officer, you seem to be woefully underinformed. Is this the best legation can offer? The lack of communication between Beijing, the legation, and Tianjin was made startlingly clear to Dennis. What else had he missed out on? Before he left, Dennis borrowed Pamela's diary. He scanned it to see if it offered any clues, but didn't find anything notable. After tasking Tianjin's deputies to investigate Pamela's school, Dennis looked into Edward. One point of interest was his wife's death. Gladys supposedly died of meningitis, but medical records told a different story. Gladys's cause of death was actually from an overdose of Varanol, a barbiturate that had been the upper class's drug of choice. It was prescribed for everything from insomnia to the flu, but it was also popular as a suicide drug. Literary superstar Virginia Woolf had even used it in one of her early unsuccessful suicide attempts. Now, maybe Gladys died from an accidental overdose, but Varanol was known to take a full day to kill someone, so presumably Edward would have noticed and gotten her help. Unless it was an intentional overdose. And Dennis wondered, what would make Edward kill his wife and daughter? Well, there was Gladys's 20,000 silver dollar inheritance, which went to Pamela upon her death and would now go to Edward. But Edward wasn't hurting for money. And even if he was and had killed his daughter for it, 
Dennis just didn't see a senior citizen committing such a gruesome crime, especially given how heartbroken Edward seemed. Meanwhile, the legation police agreed to offer a reward of 1,000 Chinese dollars for information that would lead to an arrest. A family could live on 100 Chinese dollars a year back then, so this was an absolute fortune. The next big break came almost a week after the discovery of the body. When Han and Dennis zeroed in on their first official suspect. <clears throat> uh, I run a lodging house and one of my foreign tenants. We just found him in his room. There's dried blood all over it, and it's on his clothes, too. Han went to a local flop house, where he also discovered blood-stained shoes, a blood-stained dagger, and a handkerchief covered in... You guessed it. Even more blood. He sent the blood to Peking Union Medical College for analysis, and then took the man in for questioning. The man was a worn-out 40-something known only as Pinfold. And Pinfold refused to talk, so Han held him in a cell overnight. Sources informed Dennis and Han that Pinfold was a Canadian Army deserter who had taken up a new life as a bodyguard for a Chinese warlord, until that job ended too. This Pinfold has got no job, no passport, no purpose, as far as I can tell. Well, I've learned that he apparently attends public executions for fun. So, at least he has a hobby. Maybe more than one. He has a matchbook from the Olympia Cabaret in the Badlands. My sources have also seen him at another place there, on Chuanban Hutong, number 27. That's a dive bar run by Russians, the Operinas, right next door to the brothel at number 28. <sighs> Great neighborhood. Was Pinfold there the night of Pamela's murder? If he was, and if Pamela had taken the route home through the Badlands instead of around it, maybe Pamela met Pinfold. The Badlands was a narrow but notorious strip of streets that served as a sort of buffer between the legation quarter and the rest of Beijing. Foreigners and native Chinese frequented the bars, brothels, and drug dens that made the Badlands such a rowdy hotbed of sin and vice. <laughs> you can imagine everyone's panic at number 27 when a full squad of Beijing policemen burst in asking questions about a dead girl. But... Han's bust led to no results. While some knew of Pinfold and his habit of pimping prostitutes out to off-duty soldiers, they couldn't place his location on the night of January 7th. Han and his squad went to the Olympia Cabaret, where they were given an open bar welcome by the manager, Joe Knopf, an American ex-Marine. You knew we were coming? News travels fast in the Badlands, so I hear you're snooping around for Pinfold. I've hunted with him a couple of times in the Western Hills. Was he here on the night of January 7th? Can't really say. It was Russian Christmas, and those folks can celebrate. It was crowded and crazy. I honestly can't remember if I saw Pinfold or not. Can I drink your troubles away? With a free drink as his only answer to a night of questions, Han would have to wait and find out about Pinfold some other way. A week later, Pinfold wasn't talking, and the doctors hadn't gotten back to Han with the blood analysis. He would take an odd call from Commissioner Thomas at the legation to set Dennis back on track. I don't understand. You're saying your officers have Pinfold on a suspicious persons list and no one thought to tell me? All the charges were small time. 
He was insignificant. But now, well, you might want to look into the nudist colony in the Western Hills. Pardon? I'm sure I misheard you. No, good man, you didn't. Nudist colony. Western Hills. Good luck. Well, apparently, Pinfold associated with a group of respected foreign men who ran a nudist summer colony in an abandoned temple in the Western Hills. It was run by a respected American dentist, Wentworth Prentice, and George Gorman, an Irish freelance journalist. Prentice was also rumored to hold nude dances in his Beijing apartment. Since prominent foreigners were involved, the legation turned a blind eye to the bare bottoms. Well, to them, it just seemed like strange but harmless fun. But on the bright side, this news finally got Pinfold to talk. Pinfold, tell me about Wentworth Prentice and his nudist colony. It, it's nothing, all right? Sometimes those men pay me to run security at the colony. I pay off the police if they get nosy, that sort of thing. And is there anyone else in your little security brigade? Sometimes. A guy named Joe Knopf runs the Olympia Cabaret. Interesting. What about the nude dances? Look, sometimes a bunch of rich men want to pay prostitutes to dance for them. The guys see some skin, the girls get some cash, no one gets hurt. The wire are the few things you own, drenched in someone else's blood. But the men got no answer. Whatever had spooked Pinfold into talking had spooked him back into silence. Still, they knew that they were close to something. A man with blood-stained clothes, who could have encountered Pamela on the night that she died. A secret circle of elite foreign nudists who preyed upon younger women. Did Pamela end up at one of Prentice's parties that night? I could explain the doctor's theory that she had been undressed, killed, then put back in her clothes. It felt like the dots were connecting, so, of course, Dennis was immediately called back to Tianjin. In his absence, he had sent deputies to question teachers at the Tianjin Grammar School, but the teachers were hesitant to talk. Dennis's deputy tried to visit the home of headmaster Sidney Yates, who had behaved inappropriately with Pamela the year before. Well, he was writing out his last term before his carefully planned exit back to England. But Yates refused to come out and speak to the deputies. Soon afterwards, Consul Affleck and the Tianjin Grammar School board called a meeting with Dennis to fill him in on the Yates trouble with Pamela. Yates had an alibi for the murder. He was at home with his wife and daughter. But even the hint of a scandal unnerved the school board. An abusive headmaster could be handled quietly, but a rumored murder suspect had to go. It was decided that Yates would leave immediately due to supposed poor health, and no one would speak of Pamela again. This is preposterous. It's a cover-up. Dennis, he's not a murderer. Yates has an alibi. He still hurt Pamela. And now you've given him a clean exit. I could have been in Beijing working on leads, not helping you plan his goodbye party. Back in Beijing, Han attended Pamela's funeral, where she was buried alongside her mother Gladys. On the investigative front, things looked grim. The results for the blood on Pinfold's clothes and knife came in. The results were inconclusive. Left with no hard evidence, Han reluctantly let Pinfold go free. Meanwhile, news of Pamela's organs being stolen finally broke, leading to the exact kind of racist rumors Han wanted to avoid. Edward Werner fought this issue himself by holding a press conference. 
he used his authority as a scholar to dispel the myth that the Chinese harvested organs for ritualistic purposes. I am of the opinion that Pamela's killer is not Chinese, but foreign. Most likely privileged, well-connected, and strongly protected. I am but one grieving man, but I will do what I can. I hereby pledge to use my own funds to up the police reward to 5,000 gold dollars. This was a huge chunk of Edward's savings, but he meant business. And Han and Dennis wanted to get back to it too. It was time to go after Wentworth Prentice, the nudist dentist. Dennis and Han paid a visit to Prentice's apartment at 3 Legation Street. It was right by the skating rink where Pamela had been the night that she died. But if Prentice was guilty, well, he certainly didn't show it. A handsome American in his early 40s with a degree from Harvard Dental School, Wentworth had impeccable manners and clothing. Dennis and Han knew that Pamela's friend, Ethel Gurevich, was Prentice's client, but they didn't know if Pamela was, too. Dennis had already pushed his luck by talking to Edward, even though his orders were to stick to the legation quarter. He couldn't go back to Edward again, so he had to go to Prentice himself. I assure you, I've never seen or heard of Pamela Werner in my life. Well, except for all these terrible newspaper stories, of course. Can you account for your whereabouts on the night of January 7th? Yes. I wrapped up work, then treated myself to a movie. You don't have a ticket stub, do you? No, I don't tend to keep those things. Right. So, would you care to tell me a little bit about your nudist colony and the racy little gatherings at your apartment? I suppose you expected the question to rile me. But naturalism is a growing trend. It's harmless and fun, and it happens in the privacy of the old temple we rent. You should try it. Lord knows some of your higher-ups at the legation enjoy it. Tell me, do they know you're here? I didn't mean to imply anything. Oh, and as for racy gatherings, ridiculous gossip. I have events at my apartment where fellow gentlemen discuss art and culture. That's all. Prentice escaped further questioning, but his satisfaction was short-lived. Shortly afterwards, stories popped up in the local papers about Wentworth Prentice's Western Hills nudist camp. This reveal cost Prentice a lot of respect among the conservative, status-conscious foreign set. We can't say for sure who leaked the news, but if I were Han or Dennis, I'd be pretty happy to see Prentice squirm. But Prentice had media connections, too. His journalist friend and fellow nudist George Gorman wrote an editorial defending Prentice in the Peking Chronicle, a paper read by many foreigners in Beijing. He confirmed Prentice was at the movies the night of Pamela's murder and attacked Han and Dennis for going after innocent foreigners. It painted an unflattering picture of the investigation, and Dennis was forced to back off after the legation forbade him from arresting Prentice. So, here they were again. One step closer, two steps back, and still unable to confirm Pamela's murderer. But now 20 days had passed since the murder, which meant constables were getting pulled from the case. As the Japanese army loomed closer and newer cases took precedence, Han was out of resources. He almost lost Dennis, too, until Dennis begged his superiors in Tianjin to let him stay on a few days longer. Which is good, because it meant he was still around to take a very strange, frightened call that came into the Morrison Street station. I... I need to speak to the detective in charge of the Werner investigation. The call was from Helen Foster Snow, an American writer who lived in Beijing with her husband, journalist 
Edgar Snow. In fact, they lived on the same block as Edward and Pamela Werner. Helen Snow didn't scare easily. She and Edgar were adventurous young intellectuals who caused a stir by freely supporting the growing communist movement in China. But they were also wealthy, charming, and well-connected, which made them hits at all the legation quarter parties. Helen was equally as comfortable in a ballroom discussing couture as she was in the back room writing underground political newsletters. But ever since Pamela's murder, she was consumed with guilt and worry. You see, officer, I just, I can't help but shake the feeling that Pamela's murder was a mistake. They were trying to kill me. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. DCI Dennis went to visit a weary Helen Snow at her home and saw the armed security guards that her husband had recently hired to protect her. She told Dennis that her husband, Edgar, was writing a manuscript, Red Star Over China. It detailed Chiang Kai-shek's unfair treatment and abuse of the communists. Well, that might not be the best thing to be writing right now, but what does it have to do with Pamela? I'm worried we're on their list now. The blue shirts are coming after us. The Blue Shirt Society was a secret police group faithful to Chiang Kai-shek. Its list of enemies included communist sympathizers. So Helen wasn't being completely paranoid when she thought that she or her husband could be targeted for assassination by the government. But why would they kill Pamela? Dennis, look at me. Pamela and I are both white women who live on the same street, take the same walking routes, and go to the same parties. We're both blonde and... Sure, I'm a decade older, but in the right kind of moonlight, there would be a resemblance. But the blue shirts are much cleaner in their methods. You don't end up in a very public murder case. If they want you gone, you disappear. How does that make me feel both so much better and so much worse? (sighs) Maybe you're right. But if there's a chance that poor girl died because of me, I just... I couldn't live with the guilt. But she would have to. Investigating the Chinese leader's secret police was far too dangerous and provocative for Dennis to do. Ruffling a few feathers among the stuffy legation crowd was one thing. But making Colonel Han go after his own government? If the Blue Shirts really had a list of enemies, Dennis and Han would soon be on it too. So Dennis had no choice but to ignore the final lead he'd get on this case. On February 11th, over a month after Pamela's murder, Beijing celebrated the Chinese New Year. Though the joy was a brief reprieve from worries about the Japanese, Dennis and Han's New Year was hardly a happy one. Their trail had gone cold, their suspects had slipped away, and other cases piled up. Han and Dennis were forced to move on. Well, we tried. I really do think we tried our best. I wish our best were better then, but it's been an honor, Dennis. Cheers. Happy New Year, Han. Soon afterwards, DCI Dennis returned to Tianjin and never returned to Beijing again. Colonel Han moved on to other crimes and other cases. By June 1937, Consul Fitzmaurice at the legation declared Pamela's case closed, the final verdict being murder by a person or persons unknown. Edward implored Fitzmaurice to keep the case open 
But Fitzmaurice, and everyone else, had more pressing concerns. Beijing's expat community dwindled as the Japanese closed in. Even Helen and Edgar Snow left the city to hide out with their communist friends. And so the city on the edge finally fell as Japanese troops invaded Beijing on July 29, 1937. They made themselves at home in the abandoned hotels and residences of Beijing's former elite. While the Chinese obviously suffered the most, things got worse in the legation quarter, too. Many foreigners moved into the quarter, since it was the only place their consulates could guarantee some safety. Poorer Westerners took up residence in hastily erected tents on the front lawns of their consulates. It was a bad time for everyone, but amidst the chaos, Edward Werner was razor-focused on solving Pamela's murder. As detailed meticulously in his letters and records, Edward spent months poring over the case himself. He also wrote public editorials, pamphlets, and appeals to both Chinese and legation officials. The sight of my child's kind little face, half cut away and bleeding, as her mutilated body lay on the ground that terrible morning, seemed to drag my eyes out of my head, and the shock has permanently injured my heart. During every minute of every day, that vision has beat upon my brain. But no one was there to help him. So by January 1938, a year after his daughter was killed, Edward Werner vowed to journey into Beijing's criminal underworld to solve her murder himself. Though Beijing was in a state of chaos, there were those who found a way to make a living during it. For example, there were out-of-work Chinese detectives with skills to use. Edward was a rich and tenacious man, so he put his savings account to use, hiring informants to launch his own investigation. His first break came when he found a receipt for dental work done on Pamela some time ago by Wentworth Prentice. Prentice told police he didn't know Pamela, but that didn't seem to be true anymore. What else had Han and Dennis missed? Of course, since Han and Dennis were granted limited access to Edward, Maybe it was just a tragic accident that they missed this link. Edward visited Pamela's friend Ethel, who revealed information that she never told Han and Dennis. Ethel saw Pamela out skating the night before her murder, too, on Wednesday, January 6th, 1937. Pamela was talking to a man. Was it the dentist? Prentice? He lives right by the skating rink. Look, it's been a scary year. And I didn't want to get involved in a murder case. I didn't see who he was. I wasn't even supposed to see Pamela that night, but I ran into her while she was skating with the Gorman children. You mean George Gorman's family? That's right. The same George Gorman who was Prentice's close friend, who had defended him so diligently in an editorial. Pamela not only had a connection to Wentworth Prentice, but was also in contact with his associate, too. Edward had recently gotten Pamela's diary back from the Beijing police. After rereading it, an entry from the summer of 1936 stunned him. Pamela describes a group picnic at a temple outside of the city. She went alone, as Edward was working. And on this picnic, she says that George Gorman, in her words made love to her. Well, we, sh we should clarify that. In this context, she may have meant that Gorman had propositioned her, 
as her entry then claims that she turned down his advances and was amused at how outrageous the incident was. It seemed like Pamela was able to smoothly escape an awkward situation, but now Edward realized her escape might have only been temporary. He pictured a scenario where an angry, rejected George Gorman shared his frustration with his friend Wentworth Prentice, who had met Pamela. Prentice, the ringleader of a predatory group, may have decided to make Pamela his next target. Perhaps he killed her. Or maybe he just provided the setting for a vengeful Gorman to do it himself. It's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but Edward had always suspected Pamela's killer was a well-connected foreigner. An unexpected meeting in September 1938 helped solidify his theory when a young Russian woman approached Edward in the street. Professor Warner, I knew your daughter at Tianjin Grammar. What do you want, miss? The dentist. I had an appointment with him once. He charged me very little, which I thought was odd. But then he started following me. He kept trying to invite me to dinner, to his parties. I was scared. Did he hurt you? I was able to stay away, but I know girls who have gone to those parties. And what happens at these parties? I don't know exactly, but I know they're not always at the dentist's home. They take the girls to the Badlands, someplace on Chuanban Hutong. And when the girls leave, they're different. They're broken. How? Why didn't they speak up? A bunch of scared girls speaking out against a pillar of the community? Professor, the whole quarter would turn around and blame the girls. This is the world we live in. I'm very sorry. But I'm going to try and stop them. Edward's informants went to the Vagon Lee Hotel to get to the bottom of why Pamela was seen, asking about room rates the day she died. But the informants came back with a new twist. Well, it turns out that the concierge had been paid off to lie to the police. On Thursday, January 6th, a man fitting Prentice's description paid off the concierge at the Wagen Lee to deliver a note to Pamela Werner. Perhaps Pamela had really inquired about rates that day as a cover story while picking up her note. Or perhaps that was a lie by the concierge. But Edward suspected the note was an invitation to one of Prentice's parties. Pamela, trying to make the most of her winter holidays before leaving for England, would have been intrigued, maybe flattered. How would Pamela have known she had a note waiting? Edward thought the elusive pinfold may have informed her, or she may have found out the way most information in the legation was passed around through secrecy and gossip. Edward's informants then came back to him with a new witness, or should we say, an old one. Early on in the case, Colonel Han's men had brought in Sun Dishing for questioning. He was a 19-year-old man who was seen washing blood from his rickshaw's cushion. At the time, Han seemed satisfied with Sun's story. He had transported a drunk American Marine who had bled onto his cushion. But a year later, business was rough for alleged opium addict Sun Dijing. So Werner's money was a powerful motivator for him to tell a new story. And perhaps this one was the truth. I was working in the Badlands that night on Chuan Ben Hutong, near numbers 27 and 28. It's a bar and a brothel, so... I figured there'd be plenty of business for me if I waited long enough. What did you see? Around 10 p.m., a car pulled up. It was from the legation quarter. Black car, brown roof. Four people got out, then the driver drove off. Who were they? Three were white men. Well, one could have been part Chinese. But there was a girl there, too, a blonde. 
She walked with them into number 28. Well, they were helping her walk. It seemed like she was drunk. What happened inside? I don't know. I waited around, and then at midnight, the Russian woman who runs the brothel called out for me. Two of the men carried the blonde girl out of the building and into my rickshaw. Was it Pamela? Was she alive? I think, but she seemed like she was in bad shape. Her clothes were ripped, and there was a white cloth covering her face. I think she was breathing, but it was cold and rainy. I I couldn't see. Where did you take them? I dropped them off at an access point by the Tartar Wall. It was cold and late. I didn't know why they wanted to go there. I stuck around for a tip, but one of them waved a silver blade at me, so I got out of there. And the blood on the cushion? I didn't see it until daylight. It was only then that I realized the blood must have been the girl's, and I knew I needed to wash it out. You told the police all this? They said you picked up a bloody marine. I told them what I told you, but they said to get lost and keep quiet. Edward wondered if a scared son had told the police the wrong story, or that Colonel Hahn had disregarded the puller's true testimony. Would Hahn lie? It seemed he was committed to solving Pamela's murder. And though corrupt cops exist in every city, surely Dennis would have noticed if something in Han's approach was off. We have to remember that this all comes from Edward's recollections, and he had very little contact with the officers trying to solve the case. Right. It's possible that in his mind, Han and Dennis's inability to solve Pamela's murder took on more sinister implications. Maybe it was easier to believe it had been botched on purpose. Of course, there's also the possibility that Sun Dexing was an addict looking to make ends meet in an uncertain time. That's what legation officers said when Edward tried to reopen the case with this new information. But maybe they just didn't want to admit the investigation was botched from the start. Besides, Edward had been a thorn in their sides ever since he arrived in China. If they were to divest any of their resources from dealing with the Japanese takeover, it wouldn't be for Edward Werner. Edward relentlessly continued his investigation into 1939. And the facts get a little murky here, but it seems like his contacts kept scurrying back from the Badlands with worrisome new bits of scandal. Edward learned that the madam of the brothel at number 28 the Russian woman, Sun Dishing mentioned, had sold her lease on the building the day after Pamela's murder and fled town. Uh, which would make sense if you wanted to cut ties with a crime scene. Yeah. Edward then met with the brothel's new owner and a few women who worked there, but they were all either too scared to talk or furious at being implicated in a conspiracy. Cast out by the British and disappointed by the Chinese, Edward forged an unlikely alliance with the Japanese legation's first secretary. The Japanese man had a grudge against British consuls Fitzmaurice, so perhaps he delighted in helping one of Fitzmaurice's enemies. Werner got the Kempai Tai, the Japanese secret police, to bring in a former houseboy at the brothel at number 28. That night, I heard screams from one of the bedrooms. Then the sound of uh, something smashing, maybe furniture. Did one of the men kill the girl? The foreign men? I've said too much already. Then can you just tell me who the men were? I didn't know them. Well, one I'd seen before, an American, a dentist. As political tides turned and relations soured between the British and the Japanese, 
Edward lost access to his Japanese informants. But he pressed on. He soon encountered Saxon, a Russian pimp who introduced him to Marie, a prostitute who claimed to have worked at number 28 on the night of Pamela's murder. I saw Prentice around. He loved to flash that knife of his and scare the girls. But sometimes he hired me to dance at his little parties. At his apartment, but then the party would move back to number 28. Who else was with him? Who is his inner circle? The usual gang. Pinfold, Jonoff, and a mixed-race man, half-Chinese. His name was John... John O'Brien, I think. Who, you'll recall, was one of the suitors that had pursued Pamela despite Edward's objections. And possibly the half-Chinese man that the rickshaw puller had mentioned seeing that night. I wasn't at Prentice's party that night. I was working upstairs. But the men went in there with that blonde girl. And then later, there were screams. And a thud. A huge thud. Like some furniture fell over. Who killed her? Prentice. Prentice killed the blonde girl. We have to wonder, was this the truth or another lie from a desperate, dirt-poor denizen of the Badlands? One whose pimp took payment from Edward as soon as she pinned it on Prentice. Times were tough, and if an emotional old man was rumored to be paying for sordid information, I can imagine that people would prey on him. Still, Edward did some investigating himself and even managed to sneak into the notorious Badlands brothel at number 28. In the summer of 1939, Edward, who again was in his mid-70s, found his way into the brothel and accessed the bedroom Marie and the houseboy had said Prentice used. He saw nothing out of the ordinary except for a chair whose wooden leg had clearly been broken off at some point and replaced with a metal brace. Edward wondered if it had been broken during the scuffle with Prentice. Maybe the leg was even used to bash Pamela's head in as she fought off Prentice and his gang. Then the men took a rickshaw to the Tartar Wall, where they used their knives, seen by the rickshaw puller, to slash and disfigure Pamela. Maybe to try to make her body unidentifiable. The clues fit, or so it seemed to Edward. But since his constant appeals to the British legation went unanswered, he then decided to confront Prentice himself. Werner, isn't it funny that in this entire hubbub, we've never actually met? <laughs> I know you've been asking about me. I have to know what happened that night. I know you were there, you and your men. I will admit, I visited number 28, but only once. A year before all this trouble, mind you. And you're right, Joe Knopf and John O'Brien, we're friends. We drink together, we hunt together. But that's all it ever was. Anything else is pure fiction. Edward went after other men in Prentice's circle. Some, like Pinfold and John O'Brien, appeared to have left Beijing entirely. Others, like Joe Knopf, gave Edward a story that was so strikingly similar to Prentice's The men were all hunting buddies who visited November 28th just once, about a year before the murder. It must have become clear to Edward that no matter what he did, he wouldn't get any official justice. The leads had run dry, and the potential killers presented a confident, united front of denial. Edward did find closure for one mystery surrounding Pamela. The Chinese food found in her stomach? Remember, Pamela was out in the legation quarter that night, 
and her friend Ethel only saw her eat European food. But it seems that Pamela did have one other unexpected event happen the night she died. A dinner with Han Sho Jing, the married former student who had his nose broken by Edward. Edward's informants discovered that Pamela ran into Han Sho Jing on January 6th, the day before she died. She had felt bad about her father's mistreatment of him and proposed that they have dinner the next night. And so when Pamela left Ethel and Lillian at the rink, it was to meet up with Shou Jing for a quick bite at a Chinese restaurant. Maybe this explains Pamela's carefree goodbye to her friends. She was just rushing off to the next event in her whirlwind winter calendar. And perhaps a party with some very influential foreigners later on, including her friend and would-be suitor John O'Brien. Both invitations that she probably thought were best to keep a secret, after all. Her father was a grouch who worried too much, and she was a confident, almost 20-year-old, enjoying her last bit of fun at home. Werner continued to press the British government with constant updates on his search, but he never got the official aid he so deeply needed. And so we reached the end of the second investigation into Pamela's death. The first was a cross-cultural alliance, hampered by meddling authorities, misinformation, and a lack of communication with the grieving Edward. The second was conducted by a driven dad who spiraled into a rabbit hole of underworld gossip and saw that the men who may have killed his daughter were too powerful to take down. Edward remained at his home on Armor Factory Alley until he was forced to move into the legation for safety. By 1943, the conflict with Japan had metastasized into World War II, and all Allied nationals in Beijing were sent to internment camps. Edward was imprisoned with a motley crew of foreigners, and yet another cruel twist of irony. One of his fellow internees was Wentworth Prentice. Apparently, Edward openly accused Prentice of murdering Pamela whenever they crossed paths, but no one seemed to pay much attention. After all, Edward was a broken old man in a prison camp and tortured by the memory of his murdered daughter. I know it was you. I know you killed my Pamela. In August 1945, Edward's camp was liberated. He returned to his house on Armor Factory Alley, which his domestic workers had kept safe. Beijing may have brought him decades of heartache, but it was still home. Prentice returned to his old apartment in Beijing, too. It's unclear whether he rebuilt his circle of suspicious friends. Prentice died young in 1947 at age 54. With him, any answers about Pamela's final night died, too. Edward lasted another four years in Beijing, one of only dozens of British citizens left in the city. He then moved back to England in 1951. It was the first time he'd been back in his homeland since 1917. Edward Werner died on February 7, 1954. He was 90 years old. So after two investigations, we have to ask, who killed Pamela? Well, the only suspects that we believe truly make sense are Wentworth Prentice and George Gorman. Pamela was in their social circle, and though Gorman made advances on her in the past, it seems like she brushed them off, so maybe she wouldn't have felt unsafe seeing him in a group setting. Especially if her friend, John O'Brien, was at the party too, one hosted by pillars of her expat community. Pamela would have known all the players involved, even if she didn't know the game that they were playing. Pamela was eager to experience the pleasures of legation nightlife, So maybe this party was just the right mix of familiar and intriguing for her. 
But who struck the final fatal blow? Gorman or Prentice? Mm, past rejection is a powerful motivator. And maybe Gorman got his revenge when Pamela rejected him a second time. But Prentice was the one police initially went after. Marie the prostitute also told Edward that Prentice killed Pamela. So we think that Prentice killed Pamela for his friend George. Gorman's angry editorial defending Prentice then makes even more sense if he were both defending a friend and deflecting attention from himself. Let's remember Pamela's wounds were methodical and precise. And though Gorman could have picked up those skills as an avid hunter, it would have taken a medically trained dentist like Prentice to truly get the kill right. Between her tragic childhood, abuse at the hands of her headmaster, and the possible trap laid for her by Prentice, I don't know that Pamela would have had much faith in the people in her life. Even her father only seemed to show love through worry and discipline. So Pamela was left alone to make her own choices, some great, some terrible, just like every other young person coming into their own. But if she didn't trust the world around her, you can tell from her last words to her friend Ethel that Pamela still trusted herself. I've been alone all my life. I'm afraid of nothing. Nothing. And besides, Peking is the safest city in the world. (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Amin Osman and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Kenna McEnroe, and Steve Pinto. 